I want to, um, we're starting a, a, a short series on prayer. And to enter into it, I, I just want to tell you just a little bit about where this comes from. And um, part of it is a confession, okay? Um, if there's one thing that's needed in the church these days, it's probably a little bit more transparency. And so I'm going to do my best to do that. Um, as I look back over my life, I, I, I realize that there are um, touchstone experiences, or you might call them like anchor points, where you experience, experience something that you keep returning to and keep thinking about. Um, it's like a, something that's to be remembered, and, and all of us have them. There's this fascinating little animated movie called Inside Out that talks about these core memories. Well, I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. These memories that you go back to over and over again that really are part of the formation of, of who you are. And uh, I have a number of those anchor points or touchstones or core memories. Um, one of them is that um, about the age of 19, I might have been 20, and uh, I had newly come to faith. I, I'd heard the faith all my life. I, I was born in church, not in church, but I was born going to church. And, um, and uh, so I'd heard the truth. But at the, right around the age of 19 or 20, um, God brought my faith to life, where, where I, I actually wanted to go to church. I know this sounds like a strange thing, a 19-year-old wanting to go to church, but I, I hungered and thirsted for the word of God. I really did. And that was one of the first signs that God was doing something in my life. Um, and it was all him. It wasn't me. It was just him touching me in a way that, that I, I was hungering to go to church. And I didn't have a car, uh, no cell phones back in that day. Um, and everybody I tried to call with the real hardwired phones weren't available. Um, I was too poor to pay for a taxi to go to church. So I just remember going, all right, Lord, you want me in church. I've re- exhausted all resources. I want to go to church. Uh, and this is a true story. Uh, send me a ride. Send me a ride. And uh, it wasn't five, ten minutes later I heard this knock on the door. All right? And this guy named Rodney Bell, um, um, fellow service member, says, hey, just thought I'd stop by and ask if you wanted to come with me to church. <laughs> he had never stopped by my house, ever unannounced like that. And in that little moment, an anchor moment, a little core memory for me, it was kind of the first discovery. I'd known it intellectually since I was a kid. But in that first, that, that was the first discovery where I realized, wow, God heard me. Like, of all the billions of people on the planet, the maker of the universe took the time to listen to my simple request to go to church. And it was an overwhelming moment where I realized God really was here. It's kind of like when faith takes on a new dimension and becomes real in your heart. Now, there have been a lot of answered prayers since then, Right? But that was, that's an anchor point for me because that was kind of the first discovery that, that God really hears, that God really answers, that he really is with us. And he cares enough to actually answer a simple request by a 19-year-old living in Southern California. An anchor point for me. And I've returned to that over and over again. It's like, I remember that. That was a, that was a cool discovery moment. Now, as I said, there have been a, answered prayers throughout my time. But that was, that was, that's kind of the first discovery now, I want to I fast forward almost 30 years to last September. I, uh, my, my practice, and my, my practice on uh, my own spiritual disciplines is a bit like this. I, I get up early in the morning before my family does, and I meditate on Scripture. New Testament in, on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, and the Old Testament on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. Um, and I have these lists that I've, I've created of, of names. I pray for certain names on Monday and then others on Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so forth. So I'll meditate and pray. 
Now, before you think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm laying out for you some kind of spirituality, I haven't gotten to my confession yet, okay? But that's my practice. I, I, I practice prayer, and I pray for a lot of people in here um, by name. And I pray for people who um, I've had partings with by name, because uh, that's what the Lord asks us to do. Well, I'm, I, I'm in my meditations. I come to Psalm chapter 59, verses 9 and 10. And um, I believe that God speaks to us through the scripture in a way that is powerful. Um, and it was, the, 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 the 9 and 10 was a bit like a 2 by 4 in my face. And this is what Psalm 59, 9 and 10 say. Um, this is David. It is a psalm that is a prayer for deliverance. So it's a prayer. And I, and I listened to the forcefulness of his prayer in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 59, where he says, Oh, my strength, and you'll notice strength is capitalized because he's talking to God as strength. He's naming God as strength. Oh, my strength, I will, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. Verse 10, My God in his steadfast love will meet me God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. The forcefulness of this prayer was stunned me. Um, I will, in the context of praying for deliverance, I will watch for you to show up on the battlefield against my enemies. And my God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. There's no sense of wish or uncertainty or uh, tentativeness in the way that he prays. And uh, like I said, that's a, the voice of the Lord came through these, these verses. And in my own paraphrase of what he said to me, it's like, you're praying through all these lists, Stan. But are you watching for me? And are you confident in my steadfast love that I will meet you? And it's just one of those moments where you real, I realized that um, I was praying, but I wasn't praying with conviction or certainty or expectation. That was two by four, number one, All right? Okay, that's September. Right around the same time period, someone offers me a book, totally disconnected, um, by David McIntyre called The Hidden Life of Prayer. I read it, two by four, number two. And then, two by four, four number three. Uh, Sharon Hansen, most of you know Sharon Hansen. She's the co-founder of this church. Um, some think John is, but John wouldn't have founded it if it wasn't for Sharon, so she's really co-founder, right? She comes to my office, and in uncharacteristic manner, she says, Dan, you have to go see War Room, right? I, I'm not a huge fan of Christian movies, probably my problem, but... But the fact is, she actually got kind of bossy with me. She said, no, you, you need to go today, and you need to see this movie. And uh, I was reluctant. I argued a bit. But like any good pastor, I, I, I submitted to the voice of my secretary. And, um, and I said, okay. So went that day. And I was surprised and deeply convicted that it's so easy to pray, if you do pray, without the confidence that God is actually going to act. That was September, and I'd love to say that I've become George Mueller since then, you know, the great prayer warrior. I'm in process. 
But as I shared a little bit of my own journey with those around me, others have said the same thing. Either, one, they don't pray, which is a real problem. Or, when we pray, we pray without the sense of, of expectation or conviction that God will actually answer. And that's a real problem, too. Uh, which leads us to this new year. Um, One author called um, prayer the voice of faith. That if you actually believe that God is there and you believe he's responsive and he loves you, then that's naturally going to call forth prayer. Which means if it's not there, then what does that say about our faith? So this is a crucial core issue. I mean, at the center of the church is it's, its praying life and the word or the gospel. Those two things. Which means it's, it's massively important for us to approach this issue of, of prayer. Now, I don't know where you're at. Maybe if you, if you were taking just a moment to say, well, I, I really don't pray. Just an honest moment just to say, where am I in my prayer life? Do I pray? And if I do pray, do I pray with that sense of expectation or confidence that God's going to act? Whatever the answer is, let's go to the text of Scripture. Psalm 86 is, is one of those, it's a prayer. But in it, there, there are different facets of prayer that I, I want to bring out over the next three weeks. Uh, one of them has to do with the motivations for prayer, and that's, that's verses 1 through 7 motivations um, for prayer. Where, where, where do we find the motive to actually pray? Okay? Or in another sense, it's justification for prayer. Okay? Psalm 86, I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then I'm going to draw out three motivations. Again, notice it's a, it's a prayer. It starts off, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, or you will answer me. There's a lot of petitions in this prayer, incline, save, preserve, be gracious, gladden, give ear to my prayer. Lots of requests on the part of, of King David in the middle of a psalm asking for deliverance. But in this first seven verses, there's also what, if you will, drives him to pray um, and should drive us to pray as well. The first one is at the end of verse 1, and that is when he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Here's the reason. For I am poor and needy. I am poor and I'm needy. Now, this is King David we're talking about, right? The the one who took down the lion and the bear with his own bare hands. Um, The Goliath slayer the commanding general of the armies of Israel and and the greatest king to which every other king in the Old Testament is compared. A great man, great in resources, great in strength in terms of his army. But what's interesting is what made David great wasn't that he was great. What made David great was he grasped two sides of a coin. On the one hand, he grasped his true state as a, as, a, as, a, as a human being. And two, he grasped, and I'm using that word for faith because faith has kind of lost its grip, 
grasped who God was. And, and in those two things of knowing who he was and knowing who God was, believing who he was, believing who God was, or grasping who he was um, and who God was, um, that leads to this, this um, urgent, expectant prayer life. And we get a lot of the Psalms out of his prayer life. And part of that realization was, despite it all, I am poor and I am needy. Now, our culture works in the opposite direction. That is, we need more power and try to convince ourselves that we're great, a kind of self-empowerment kind of approach. And all of us know it's a lie. No matter how much we tell ourselves, we're great. Now, let me just say, in Christ, you are great. Apart from Christ, not so much. In fact, Jesus would say, what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. N-U-T, nothing, right? Nothing. I'm joking about the N-U-T thing. Um, that that's, that's, that's part of the realization about our own souls that gives rise to prayer. I, I, I can't do this. Problem is, most of us deep down believe we can. Um, and when we do, we, we, we lose that sense of urgency for prayer because we think we got it handled. We feel like we can accomplish it or take care of it, and I don't want to bother God. But to, to come to the place where it's like you actually know, listen, I am, I am poor. And I am needy. Lord, without you, I am, I am nothing. And, um, and out of that, I, 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 I'm praying for you um, to, to, to respond, right? That's, the, that, that's, that's a part of the motivation for prayer. And interestingly enough, um, I think a case can be made that David learned this kind of realization through real experience. I, God has a way of... And this is a good thing. This is his work. He's, he has a way of taking away the things that we like to depend upon. So then we're forced to, all right, Lord, I don't have that anymore. So now, now what am I going to rely on, right? I mean, David lived in caves. He lived off the land. He was pretty much homeless. He was under the hand of oppression and, and, and so forth. And, and in all of those, who did he have to lean on? At the end of the day, he had one person. And God does that to us. Even this particular uh, Psalm, he's, he's in the middle of a crisis. Uh, God, insolent men have risen against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. Like, I have nowhere else to turn. I have no recourse but you. And just to recognize that part of the process of our growth in faith is, 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 is God putting us in context where, where we, we realize our own desperation, right? I don't have money to get a taxi. I don't have a cell phone. I can't get to church. I don't have a car. Who do I have left? Okay, I'm just going to ask, right? Well, that's, that's part of it. It's just the realization of our, our own neediness. And if we don't acknowledge it now, the fact is, and maybe people don't even acknowledge it when they approach death, but the fact of the matter is every ounce of strength in life is taken away from us. We don't have the, the, the power even to make our own heart beat each moment. That is, a, is an act of grace. So if, if we, we want to see prayer like naturally just rise up from the heart, not just as a practice, but from the heart. It means that 
God has to do this work of bringing us low to, to experience and really grasp that I, I'm nothing without you. That's, that's part one. Two, also in this text, the belief in a personal God who answers. The belief in a personal, and I chose that word very carefully, um, personal God who answers. You'll notice verses three, four, and seven. He has this, he keeps saying four. That's his justification for praying um, or part of his motivation for believing God will answer him. He's like, be gracious to me. That's a prayer, O Lord. For, and here's why you should be gracious to me. For to you do I cry all the day and I'm praying constantly to you, so be gracious to me. Verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant. That, again, is a prayer. 4, here's the reason, justification. Here's why you should gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. That's an image, a metaphor of, of, of prayer. Lifting up my soul to you. And then in verse 7, he switches it around a bit and says, In the day of my trouble, I call on you. For, here's why I call on you. For you answer me. There's no, you might, I hope you will, I'm wishing, I'm betting that you're going to answer me. That is, it's, okay, Lord, here's why you should answer my prayer. Because I'm praying to you. The, The idea in it is that God should answer the prayer of David because David knows God is an answering God. He knows that's part of his character, to respond in love and mercy and to deliver and rescue. It's, it's, it's who he is. And so he's, he's banking on the fact that when someone prays to God, as he has revealed himself, then God is the kind of God who responds. And that is one of the most beautiful things about how, who God has unveiled himself to be in Scripture and most fully in the person of Jesus himself. Christianity, nor Judaism, is a pantheistic religion that believes that God is pantheism, that God is some kind of impersonal force or energy out there that somehow, through some means, we need to tap into an impersonal divinity that is so far away from the God of the Bible and the God that has been revealed in the very personal person of Jesus Christ. So the God that emerges from Scripture is a God who is moral. He is personal. He has a name. He speaks. He listens. He relates. He responds. That's how he's revealed himself. And any brand of theology that would seek to say that God doesn't respond that way to our human actions or requests, to me is fundamentally distorted and seems to deny who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus. So you have... One of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is making his way up to Jerusalem. His death is uh, is pending. He's he's marching up there to die. He's in Jericho. He's with a caravan of people making his way up. And this blind man begins calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, can't see, but he's crying out. And people tell him, shh. The master doesn't have time for you. Jesus halts the entire caravan, says, wait. And he moves over to the blind man who's a beggar and heals him. That is a very personal 
revelation of who God is. See, responds to the pains and the cries of his people. And that's what David's come to know. And what we also likewise have to come to know that, that when we believe that God is an answering kind of God, he's, he's, his disposition is to respond to us, then that actually motivates us to pray. And the best illustration I can think of in terms of showing that that is in fact the case is an infant, right? You know, this infants when they come out of the room are complete womb, not room, womb, are completely helpless. They can't control their arms, legs, you know, eyes are going everywhere, no motor skills whatsoever, can't control their bladders or anything else. They can't manage to bring food to their mouth. They can't walk, they can't travel, can't change themselves, they can't give themselves shelter, nothing. Nothing. Absolutely helpless. That's motivation number one. Absolutely helpless. Whether they're consciously aware of it or not. But they can do one thing. Well, they can do a couple of things, but one thing in particular. They can cry. They have an instinct to make noise and wail, even when they don't have words, when they're in pain. And it doesn't take too long before the infant realizes, when I call, someone always comes. Unless they call too much and you've got to shut them up in the room for a little while, right? <laughs> you don't want to manipulate me through all your crying, but you get what I say. Our kids, they knew. They knew when they called that you would come running because they know that the person that loves them is a responding kind of person. Now, if we had that same level of confidence that God is, dis- is predisposed by nature of his character to respond to his people, we would pray a whole lot more confidently. Now, here, now here's the deal. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I've asked God a lot of times, and he didn't respond to my prayer, so I've kind of lost confidence just to experience. But maybe part of the problem is that we've, we've placed, we've been, we've been way too tentative and not confident enough in terms of God is the God answering, person answering, prayer answering kind of God. Sometimes our tentativeness might come from our own experience that, well, I've prayed and God hasn't responded. Well, keep in mind, he hasn't responded yet. Sometimes maybe we're tentative because we want to save the Lord's reputation. So instead of praying, Lord, be it through miracle or medicine, cure this cancer. And then we throw in there something to kind of get God off the hook, like, if it be your will. Now, listen, if it be your will, that's a good biblical thing. Jesus prayed, right, not my will, but your will be done. And there's a, there's a sense in which Jesus surrenders in faith to the goodness of God. Sometimes, however, I think that's just a cloak for our doubts. Like, we really don't God think God, God's going to come through, and so we just kind of let God off the hook by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there is a place for that, but at the, on the other hand, there are so many prayers in the book of Psalms and in the New Testament that are confident, and they aren't tentative, which leads me to a conclusion. I was th- thinking through all of the biblical teachings that are explicitly on prayer, and it seems to me that the emphasis or the weight should be given to confidently believing that God was going to answer in the affirmative. Jesus says, ask, knock, and seek, and it shall be done for you. You have not because you ask not. Jesus teaches, listen, you fathers know how to give good gifts to your, your, your children. When they ask for bread, you don't give them a stone or a scorpion. So you, fathers being evil, knowing how to give good gifts, how much more is our God who is gracious able to give good gifts to his people who ask him? In other words, the preponderance 
of biblical teaching on prayer would lead us to the conclusion of being confident, not tentative. You follow? In other words, what I'm saying in terms of practice is we need to pray with confidence that God is going to act. And we pray consistently, persistently, as Jesus did, until the Lord says definitive, no. Or wait and keep praying. I, I, seems to me that that is, that is the conclusion. But that comes from recognizing, again, God is an, an answering personal God as he has shown himself to be in Jesus Christ. And we have every bit more reason to believe and be confident than even David did because we have more light than he did. Um, in the words of the Apostle Paul, you know, um, in whom, Christ, we have boldness, And access with confidence through our faith in Christ. Because he has made us worthy of being listened to. Because he has died for us. Boldness and confidence. Do do you pray that way? I I have to say, like I said, September 2 before number 1, 2, 3. No, I wasn't praying that way. I've started to. And I've already seen how the Lord's starting to answer and just overwhelmed. Third and final one. Oh, by the way, great little quote by Andrew Murray. Faith in a prayer hearing God, that sums up the point, will make a prayer loving Christian. That's good. Belief in a prayer answering God, he really is disposed to answer his child like a father is willing to uh, answer his children. Becomes a prayer-loving Christian. And the third one, the love and goodness of God. He says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. In my opinion, David's favorite word and kind of the galactic center of who God is is this word in Hebrew called hesed or steadfast love because he quotes it all the time in his prayers. He is banking on the fact that God's love for him is a steadfast, good, never-ending, ever-full love and will always meet him in his time of need. That's it. It's like to know that God loves me. And again, instinctively we know this. I, right, Even to this day, my dad's almost 80 years old. If I called him right now and said, Dad, I've lost everything and I need your help, I guarantee you he would drop everything And he'd come running. Because I know, I grasp that he loves me. And when we are able to grasp how much God loves us, or let me use, if we can grasp how much our Father loves us, enough to, you know, have himself filleted out on a tree and die by crucifixion to bring us home, uh, well, then you're going you're gonna to pray to him knowing that and confident in his love for you. And even if he does say no, and he does say no, he said no to Jesus, he said no to Paul, and said no to others. We always trust that it's always a gift when he says no. Um, I've had one of my teenagers ask if they could stay out till three or four in the morning, and I said no. Because I love you, and you're not doing that. <laughs> to recognize even when there is a no, God is being good to us in that gift of a no. 
But here's the thing, um, as I experienced the, in my core memory, when like, the fullest display of God's love to ever be seen will be at the crucifixion of Jesus. There's no greater statement. But we get to experience the love that he unleashed for us through the cross in real time, moment by moment, as we see and experience him answering our prayers. That we actually experience the steadfast love and goodness and forgiveness of God as we, as a people journeying in life, um, are knowing we're weak and we're needy, knowing that he's a God who, who is personal and he is an answering God, um, that he, he loves us. That is, that is where the motive, motives for a healthy, vibrant um, prayer life come from. And you'll notice that each of these three things kind of comes into crystal clear focus in the gospel itself because one of the things the gospel declares to us is that, you know what? Jesus had to die because you were helpless. That Jesus came to die because God was answering our deepest need. That's the kind of God that he is. And at the cross is the full display of God's steadfast love for us. All of these motives are found focused in the gospel of Jesus himself. So, so here's, here's the thing. I, it, it doesn't, I don't want you simply to try and go out there and practice more prayer. I'd rather us take a careful heart look at our, ourselves and, and be honest with ourselves and be honest with the Lord because he sees the truth anyway. You don't, can't fool him. One, are, are you a praying person? And if you're not, not don't want you to pile condemnation on yourself. The starting point of any change is to come to the realization that, you know what, I need some help here. I need some help in my prayer life. Or maybe you've been praying, and like me, you've lacked the conviction and confidence that, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that God is going to answer in the affirmative, and I'm going to keep, keep praying until God clearly says no. Um, but I'm going to trust that he loves me, and that's, I'm going to pray in that, that vein. If that's, if that's you, then, then hey, be honest with yourself and honest with the Lord about it. And maybe this morning on a kind of an opening of a new year, God will start to do changes. And because and, um, this is a vital part of our Christianity. It's a vital part of our communion. It's a vital part of our worship of, of who God is. It's this thing called, called prayer. Um, so if we're, 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 depending on how you answer those questions... Um, Maybe just take a, a, a moment of reflection and pause uh, to search your own heart and just honestly answer the question, where, where are you in, in terms of your communion with God through prayer? Um, and what are the areas that maybe you just need to call on the Lord and say, Lord, I need, I need reformation here too. I need renewal here in my, my heart as it relates to who you are. Just, just take a moment um, for that, all right? Just be honest with the Lord.
Gracious Father, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself not simply to be holy and mighty and sovereign, which you are, but you've also revealed yourself to be a gentle, kind, careful, thoughtful shepherd to our souls. Um, and uh, the bruised reed you will not break. So Lord, we, we come to you as a people and simply want to be honest before you and you see into our hearts. You know where we're at with you. Um, whether we're prayerless or we're faithless in our prayers or, or maybe there are some here who are just right on. In which case, Lord, they can be an inspiration for all of us. But we ask, Spirit of the living God, that you would come fill our hearts with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you, in the cross, in the fact that you love us, you're merciful, you're an answering, responding personal God, and that we would know your love. So uh, do your work. Um, Maybe this is just a start of a journey for some, or maybe it's a reminder for others. Um, Whatever it be, Spirit of the living God, um, do your work for your namesake. Amen.